I have no college degree at all. And the joke here is that that commencement speech was when they were giving me a doctorate in, in engineering at, at a really good university at the same time as the prime minister and Nelson Mandela. Think about that. The prime minister of England. That's what's kind of the joke is even though you kind of shortcut the system, like I didn't ever go to, to college, I end up with a doctorate and they call me Dr. Perry when I go on the campus. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. What I think is a pretty awesome interview podcast getting damn close to episode 100. If you're new here, I'm Lewis. My co-host is Kyle. We're two dudes. We're both 22. Uh, conveniently, there's been a lot of periods where we're different ages, but right now for a few months, we're both 22. And on this podcast, we try to just learn from really incredibly accomplished people, incredibly smart people on entrepreneurship and technology and investing and internet culture, people with large audiences, people who have written books, people who are subject matter experts in other ways. They're teaching us how to just accumulate leverage, take advantage of the overwhelming array of opportunities, learn from their incredibly awesome backstories, and you get to listen in and learn as we learn. It's pretty great. This episode, as always, in my opinion, is awesome. David Perry joins us. He is the CEO and co-founder of Caro, which is an e-commerce partnership network built on Shopify. More on that in the episode. He explains it. Prior to that, David Perry created a company called Kakai, which he sold to Sony for a whopping $380 million. That's the real number. I mess up numbers frequently, but that one was not a mistake. He's been a TED Talk main stage speaker, not TEDx, big difference. That talk's accumulated over 1.3 million views. It's a great speech. Check it out. He has earned an honorary doctorate in engineering from Queen's University. He's spoken at places like MIT, Stanford, and many, many others. This episode discusses lessons from, I guess, 39-year career as a person highly involved in the video game industry, as someone highly always on the cutting edge of technology. And specifically, we get really deep into his current business, the e-commerce partnership network, and kind of some of the opportunities with cross-promotion of brands, partnerships, working with influencers, marketing in general. And I assure you, if you stay to the end, you will not regret it. That's all I have to say about this episode. I hope that you enjoy it. And I'm just going to switch over to it now. David, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We're super excited to be chatting today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Got a very interesting backstory, a couple successful exits. We can talk about a very exciting project today. Uh, but I want to ask a question from kind of your video game backstory. One of the games you were heavily involved in was the Matrix video games. That movie was rebooted pretty recently. So I'm curious how that project came about, what your role was in designing those games, and kind of if you could speak on that just to get us started. Well, in, in my career in the video game industry, um, I found that it was kind of interesting. There's two paths. One is you make the game you want to make, you know, you've got some crazy idea and you want to make that game. Um, but generally that's very hard. Then you have to convince the, the world to play your game. Whereas if you get the rights to some movie or franchise, then people just automatically reach for it. And so I kept finding that one of the first games I did was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and it went straight to number one. And I sort of went, hold on a minute, this is how this works. And so I got to do the Terminator. Um, with, uh, Orion, you, you know, that whole Orion picture is the first Terminator, uh, James Cameron's one. Um, it was really fun to, to see that process because they didn't really take the game seriously. It was like a, a license for a coffee cup. They weren't willing to, I couldn't use, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the game. I couldn't use Linda Hamilton in the game who was, you know, Sarah Connor and, that was a terrible thing. As a gamer, I want to be the Terminator. And so we were just so frustrated. So uh, what happened, you know, fast forwarding um, with the Matrix was the, the Wachowskis reached out. They had played um, other games that we'd made and they were interested in working together. And I ended up um, meeting with them and Joel Silver, who was the executive producer of the movie. And um, at the time we were very busy working on other projects. So um, I was kind of torn, you know, we didn't know what the matrix was. It's easy for everyone now to go, oh, the matrix, that the first movie was incredible. I didn't know this at the time. So I was just looking at my schedule and I don't think we, we have time to, to do this. And so we passed on it. And, um, and then I went to see the matrix and I was sitting there in the movie theater with my wife and she was kind of like, this is a great movie. And, and so I, I was like, I know I'm dying over here. And so, uh, then they, they reached back out to me and said, we're going to make a sequel, um, reloaded. And would you like to 
you know, um, collaborate, but what was kind of fascinating. And of course the answer was, you know, hell yes. Uh, and what was fascinating was that they, instead of saying, you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this. Instead, they were like, we're going to shoot an hour of new, new movie footage just for your, for your game. And we're going to, we'll write, we'll design the game. We're going to give you the, the path we want to follow, et cetera. And we're going to basically, um, really work with you on this project. And so the idea that you would be working that closely with Hollywood was, was kind of exciting for us. And there was a lot of work to do because we had to build engines for all these different game platforms. But the, the net result was we did get it out on time. Um, you know, there was kind of non-negotiable. You can't say, oh, I need an extra year. That's not going to work. So we had to, we had to really jam to get the game ready, but we got it ready on time. And, um, and it was a, it was a huge hit. And so at the time our company was actually bought by Atari. So Atari really wanted to sell the matrix. And, um, and so, you know, we had this whole event, the green carpet and, you know, the, the movie stars showed up. It was just, it was a really fun. It, it, the game industry, you got to remember, I started in my bedroom when games were black and white and I was doing like the beeps because there was no music and things like that. And nowadays it's, it's just so, um, incredible how much it's, it's come along, but th these are some of the key milestones, certainly, um, you know, as far as the interaction with Hollywood went, another game we made is Aladdin with Disney. And that was another example where the studio actually supported our game and they gave us access to. Disney feature animation. So you can imagine how unfair that was. We're making our game and everyone, and we have Disney feature animation working with us and everyone else has to do their <laughs> own animation. It's a little unfair. Um, uh, but the, the result was, you know, people are getting to see animation they've never seen before. And so you can see why Hollywood and the game industry can work together. It's definitely, um, it's definitely a, a good thing when it happens. Yeah. Uh, I think that's amazing an amazing story. And I, really can't imagine what it was like in those early days. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, you sort of alluded to it in talking about the matrix and how you, you said no, and then you went and saw the movie and then you agreed to it. And like in the same way that you were, um, in your bedroom with Pong and black and white beeps, it's like, we've seen an incredible exponential growth in, in both the usage of games, the quality of games, um, like and you were there in the beginning. And so this adoption curve, what has it been like for you as somebody who's gone along on every dot of this, of this adoption curve? And like, how would you liken that to other industries like the internet and et cetera, et cetera? Well, the game industry is, um, it's a, an interesting industry because it's always pushing technology to the limit. I used to have a kind of a fun relationship with Intel, for example, is that some guy from Intel would show up at our office with a backpack with the latest chips, and then they would, they would put them into our computers and then we would push them to their limits the next day. And so there was never, they could never give us anything fast enough ever, no matter what they built. And, uh, this one time I was giving a speech and they brought a, a black box from Intel just for my speech so I could show um, what games are going to look like in the future in a way. And, uh, it's just funny because that, that concept, um, meant that we were important to the chip industry. If you think about, um, if you're making word processors, it's already, it, chips are already fast enough. You don't need to type, you know, it's like, can you please type a lot faster? You know, you're, you're so slow because <laughs> the computer is just so powerful. And so games are the thing that, that, that were, that were key to them. But, but overall the, the industry, um, the industry keeps evolving, but I, I feel like we're so far from the end of the track. Like we're so far, it's stunning how dumb the, the characters and games still are to this day. You know, like you walk into a room, a guy says, welcome to town traveler. You kill everyone in the room. And he says, welcome to town traveler. It's just, there's no, there's no intelligence in the games. Um, and it's. There's so much opportunity to create real better worlds in a way. And, um, and, and voice recognition, I can't really talk to that player. I can't talk to that character using my voice. I can't command my squad using my voice and they're all, you know, intelligent. I used to laugh because in the, there was a game some, at some point I remember playing where they gave me a sidekick, which is like an extra gun. And I was so excited about that because, you know, now I've, you know, you've got an extra gun, you're going to be able to, it's like 
it's almost like in the old days when you had a, a double fire, a triple shot, you've got this extra guy, but the problem is everywhere I go, he's getting stuck on the stairs and getting in my way. <laughs> so I just want to shoot him and get rid of him because he's more annoying than he is actually a help. And, and so that's, that's kind of my point is I think the game industry still has a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, things to do with speech cognition, speech generation, um, you know, AI characters. I think at some point we should experiment with putting actors into games, you know, live actors, um, cr you know, crazy ideas to try to make the world so unbelievably immersive. Um, but there's loads of room, loads of room for, for ideas for sure. Hopefully that makes sure. sense. We have a past podcast guest who's put a lot of work into intelligent chatbots and just like kind of thinking of the overlap between all these different industries, right? Like some innovation is made where those chatbots can become more intelligent and those are kind of used in an e-commerce context and customer support. But if, you know, that guy makes a breakthrough, for example, you know, you could sell that technology to a game company and all of a sudden that reader might actually recognize the context of what's happening in the room and, and give a response. So it's interesting to see and kind of consider those overlaps. Uh, I'm sure we'll ask some kind of future facing questions towards the end about other trends, kind of where we are today and some things that might be on the horizon that kind of average people who aren't super paying attention to video games might not know about that might be super interesting to, to dive into. But how do you make the transition from the video game world kind of into this e-commerce, influencer, uh, online store type world? My last company was bought by Sony PlayStation. Um, we were working on cloud gaming and it, and the technology that we created was built into the PlayStation. It's called PlayStation now, and, um, people are paying to subscribe to that. And so that was a fun thing. And my intention was to retire at that point. And so I, I built this incredible man cave, um, with CNC, uh, welding, photography, 3d printing, every possible cool thing under the sun in one space. And it's, it was my plan is just to start, you know, creating new things there. Um, but what happened was the photo studio sort of won, and I found myself, um, doing a lot of photography, but I found that nobody cared about that photography unless I took pictures of influencers. So every time you take a picture of an influencer, suddenly everyone wants to like meet them. And can you help me connect to this person? I want to marry them. And you, you know, it never ends. And so that, uh, that meant that I was, I was in a room effectively with people that, that have huge followings. And, and I, I would look in my room and go, the people here, their followers, um, total 15 million. And, and I, and I would be like 15 million people. How many is that? And I went to an Ed Sheeran concert at the Rose Bowl in Los Angeles. And when you're in the Rose Bowl, people are so small. Like, there's just so many people there. And when you look around, it's just a sea of people. And that's about 60 to 80,000 people. And I'm like, hold on a minute. So Ed Sheeran can get like 60 to 80,000 people, um, you know, every now and again in a space like this. These guys are talking to 15 million every day. Um, like, what what is that like? And And so you get to when... When you're the photographer, they, the guards tend to go down and actually tell you, you know, what's going on in their world. And you know, the, the cars they're driving aren't that great. And you're like, you know, I, I thought you guys would be killing it. And the answer is, well, not really, because a lot of the brands that want to work with them, they can't work with because they don't use their products or have no relationship or they're not, it would just be fake. And, um, and so that caused me to start thinking about, well, what is it? What's an authentic influencer relationship. And the answer is when I have a, a 17 year old daughter, I realize I get it. I can imagine all these companies that could ask her to wear their clothes and tell everyone these are the best clothes. But uh, you know, in reality, she never wears their stuff, but there are brands that she's in love with. And if only she could connect to the brands she loves, she would freak out, right? That would be so exciting if they were to reach out and say, please stop buying our clothes. You know, here you are, we're going to give you whatever you want for free going forward. Um, and so that's what we did is we built the technology to do that, to sort of pair up brands and influencers that really like each other. And, um, and that, that took off, as you can imagine, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's the response from the influencers literally, oh my God, I love what you do. I've been buying your products for years. And, uh, and that's, that authenticity I think is, is just critical for those relationships and it matters because attention is the lifeblood of brands. If you're building an online brand, um, how much attention would you like? And you know, the answer is, uh, infinite, too much. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard a brand say, please stop with the attention, you know, no more attention. It's they're, they're paying Facebook and Google. And the kind of joke is that they're all paying Facebook and Google for the same clicks. Like if you're in the same product category, you're, you're, you're all paying them for the same, um, traffic over and over and over and over. Are you driving after each other's business? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And that's, that's why their model, that's why they're such wealthy companies. So, but ultimately, um, so our, our thought was, how do we get more attention for brands, which is the most valuable currency to them? And secondly, how do we, how do we help influencers connect authentically and, uh, and start to really enjoy what they do? And so, um, that's what we've done. We've, we've connected over 7 million, uh, influencers with brands at this point. Wow. That's a lot of, that's a big number there. Um, there's a lot, yeah, I think it's super interesting how (laughs) like content creators have to sort of like draw this line and they, and like, they have to think about risk within their own brand, right? Like if they, you know, bring on some company that they don't use and don't care about, everybody's going to notice that everyone's going to know they can smell authenticity on them. And then that devalues their brand. And then when they find somebody that wants to work with them or that they want to work with, they won't want to work with them because they were doing bad deals. And so they really have to be like thoughtful about the money that they take while building their personal brand. What you just said is, is shockingly correct compared to what most marketing people think. Um, so you've said that influencer has a brand and, and a lot of marketers think that influencers are billboards. They're not brands, they're billboards. I pay them to do what I want them to do. And they tell them, I want you to post at 12 PM and you can't talk about any other shampoo for six months. And you know, yada, 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 yada. We're going to make the content for you because we don't really trust you to do it. Um, and it, and it, it, by treating them like billboards, it's a disaster. And what happens that the dirty little secret in the industry is the influencers delete those posts as fast as they can legally can. As soon as the day they can get them out of their feed, they'll delete those posts. Whereas if they're actually working with a brand that they totally love and wear their stuff all the time, or that makeup is on their face right now. When, when they do a deal with that brand, they don't delete the posts because they're, that's part of who they are. That's part of, you know, their life. And so, um, it's just interesting. I, I find the whole space fascinating. So, you know, again, I'm coming from a very different perspective. I'm not from this space. So I'm just looking at it from the outside saying, how can we help with this? And, um, and, and we've found ways that we can help. And so making treating, that would be my, if this is any brands listening, I would say definitely think of influencers as brands and work out how you can collaborate with them. Actually ask yourself, what do they need? And I'll tell you what influencers need is they need content. Those people get up every day, open their eyes and look at their bedroom going, oh, I've shot every square inch of this bedroom. I need more content. I got to go somewhere else. So can they come and to your factory or, or sit in a design meeting or make a product together, give them some content that's really, really, really helping them out. Um, and you'll find they're, they're, they're very interested in doing that, especially if they like your brand. So there's, there's all kinds of possibilities, but it's a, it's a really, really exciting space. And the, the, the opportunity is, is phenomenal. The amount of, the amount of young uh, kids that want to be, um, influencers when they grow up, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a- yeah, I, I saw something uh, a couple of weeks ago in the number one um, like job or what do you want to be when you grow up question polled amongst elementary kids was um, to be a YouTuber. Of course. And, and, uh, and it makes a lot of and, money. Like for the people who yeah. do it right, it's actually a real business. Like they do make. 100%. I, and I, I think uh, what you're saying about them being a brand is like absolutely right. And I think that the quality of the influencer and the quality of the brand has a lot to do with the relationship as well. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the like intersect. Well, first I want to ask you, um, if I'm a, a, an influencer with a million followers, how do I go to Caro and get value for, for myself, my brand and my, um, you know, utilize my influence or, or have a higher leverage influence? Yeah. Think of Caro as a network of brands. We have over 30,000 brands that have installed our technology into their, into their stores. We're currently in the Shopify platform, so they install it in there and then we help them manage this, um, these relationships with these influencers in a very simplistic way. So what we are not is some kind of agency. We're not trying to get between the influencer and the brand. We're just literally trying to make it easy for them to, to collaborate. And so 
Currently, it's based on an invite system, meaning that influencers don't come to us or don't apply to us. I mean, technically, we can add them if they so if they if they want to, they could email us at hello at getcaro getcaro.com. So T-E-T-C-A-A-R-O-O.com. And if they mention this podcast, by the way, we'll take really good care of people. But ultimately, they can um, they can contact us and be added to the database. And what that means is they, um, you know, they will then get introduced to the brands that, that, that we think that they have an authentic relationship with. And so, um, that would be a good thing, but the way it's normally done is the brands actually invite the influencers. So the, the brands are actually, um, you know, determining who gets invited because ultimately they're giving away, um, products. So the, you know, we've have had over a million dollars of products um, sent out already. Um, to these influencers. And so that's, that we're just trying to make it really easy and, um, and also to help um, make them think differently. Because what happens is you'll find a brand that has 7,000 influencers that actually, you know, um, are, are authentically connected to them, but they, they don't know this. So they go and hire an agency and, and hire three other influencers who have no connection to them. And, uh, you know, they just, they just random people that an agency chose off Instagram. And, and paid them to promote your product. So I would say you want to work with the ones that, that actually, you know, wear your makeup, use your makeup. Those are the people you want to start with. What about the quickly? Like you don't the, have to, and you don't have to pay them by the way. Yeah. Who's not paying who? So to, 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 well, you don't need to pay them because you're, you're giving them, um, the products initially. And if you want to pay them and do a, an ambassador deal or some kind of deal, you could do that as well. Um, what we're working on now, which is kind of fun is the idea we, we've realized that most influencers don't know, um, who they influence, um, meaning that they've actually for years been sending their clicks to Amazon or somebody else, and they're getting three to 5% of the sale, um, which is what Amazon pays. And, um, and, and, and what we're saying is why don't you have your own Shopify store and then you become the retailer. So then you'll get 30% plus. Uh, which would be, you know, 10 X what you're currently getting. But the most important part isn't the money. The most important part is you now have customers. And why does that matter? Well, because that's proving that you actually, people care what you have to say, right? So if you can sell a hundred thousand e-bikes, then trust me, the e-bike industry will fight to get into your store. They will literally fight with each other to, to, because you've you, you, you know, you've got actual proof of it. Um, and you know, you can cause action instantly. Um, and you, you know, you can remarket to all those people that have already um, purchased from you before. So the idea anyway, is just to, to start to make this relationship, um, between brands and influencers, um, even better. But, but one of the things that happened during COVID was we realized, well, why don't we do this for all brands? So why not have any brand can, can work with any other brand? Um, some brands make helmets and some make bicycles. So hold on, the bike guys don't have any helmets and the helmet guys don't have any bikes. Hmm, maybe we could fix that. And what we found, which is again, just coming into this industry and looking at it going, why do you do it this way? Like you're buying, you go to the helmet company and you, you, is this guy's got, I don't know, 24 different colors of helmet. You choose two. And, uh, cause it's, you think those are the most popular, you know, in your audience, and then you, you just choose the most common sizes. Why not have all the sizes and all the colors? Um, and so we can do that with technology. We connect the two stores together, but now you have all the helmets and all the colors and all the sizes. So now you can learn what your audience is into, right? Let it's just, it's just a different way of thinking today. They, they literally move the product from the helmet company into your warehouse, just a few different helmets, and then you try to sell those. And then you either do a, rest, a return agreement so you can, you know, pay restocking fees or something to get those things back, or you have a clearance sale, which you see all the time, just getting rid of all that dead product out of the warehouse. And, uh, you don't need to do that. So, so what we've effectively, uh, created is a way to do virtual retail where you're actually doing, um, your virtual warehousing, virtual inventory, virtual items. I mean, all of it can be done that way. Um, and. I mean, today, as you know, drop shipping exists where you can do this with products from China, but, but that's not the experience that 99% of high quality brands are looking for. They want to work with high quality brands. So to be able to put, you know, your favorite helmets into a store, 
Um, and curate that is really important to brands. Like they want to choose the right helmets for their audience, but here's the twist. And I think this is the fun part of this is do you realize what's happening there? That means the brand is curating with, um, and choosing what products from multiple different entities and, and putting together this aesthetic offering of what they're into, which makes them an influencer. So in a way brands become tastemakers. Um, and this is what we're learning. And, uh, and influencers are becoming brands by creating their own stores and partnering with brands. And so that's a future I think is going to get really interesting as that, uh, as that continues, as they, as they collaborate together. Uh, so what I is think the that's really forward thinking? Oh, completely. I'm just going to get the logistical questions asked. That's what? Uh, but so where do you sit in as your business to, to make money from kind of all of this, like really, really fascinating matchmaking? Yeah. So say you're the helmet company. What we say to them is, look, um, today, if you want to get attention for your helmets, you're probably going to pay for clicks or something like that. Here you have all these partner stores that, that could sell skateboard stores and bike stores that could be selling your helmets. Why don't we just take your metadata and put it into their stores? So they're not, there's no helmets moving anywhere until a sale occurs. And because of that, there's the, that's better margin for, for, um, for the sale, but what we'll be doing is we're going to push your helmets into the traffic in other sites. And so every single site you do a deal with and, and you, you put your product into their site, you're getting their traffic for free. And that causes the light to go off for brands. They're like, wait a minute. Cause initially they're always focused on themselves. Like I have my one store. My job is to drive traffic to the store. That's my life. Whereas if you push your products into lots of other stores, you get all of their traffic for free as well. Again, it's, the, it's a circular conversation because it goes back to attention. So we're constantly thinking, how do we get more attention um, for these brands? And, and that, that's a way to do it. And, um, and so if you think of that as you're making the product and you're pushing them out, well, you have the exact same thing on the other side. I'm the retailer, so I'm selling my bikes and I need helmets. So here's the point. If someone's going to go to Amazon and buy a helmet because you don't sell it, right? They're, they're going to open up another tab and go buy the, the, the things that you don't sell. So what we're trying to say to them is what goes with what you sell. Um, you sell makeup, do you sell makeup remover? You would be stunned how many don't, right? You sell makeup, do you sell brushes that go with that? And so why not, um, why not think about what your audience needs and then offer those things? If, if any of those things sells really well, like you probably should be making your own brushes, right? You, you need to get that done because you're selling it a one-to-one -one with your makeup. I'd start thinking about making brushes or doing a deal and with one of these companies to make your brushes. But, um, you can see how growing a real business when you're, when you're focused on attention is, is, uh, is such a key um, piece of the puzzle. And so that's, that's what we constantly keep going back to is, um, how can we help get attention and sales? And, uh, and of course we see that. Um, I, I was looking at some data yesterday of a company that sells uh, screen protectors and it's kind of fascinating because their screen protectors are $40, but they, they're upselling through our tech. Um, um, you're supposed to draw on your iPad using through these special screen protectors and it makes the screen feel like paper. So for an artist, when you're drawing on this screen protector, you feel like you're drawing on paper, but we, um, there's a stand that you can get with it, um, that holds your iPad at the perfect angle to be able to draw. And that stand is three times the price of the screen protector. And so that's an additional sale. Um, and you'd be stunned because of course people are buying it. And so you go, well, wait, you're only going to make $40 and you just made a $200 sale over and over and over and over. So that's increasing your average order value and in e-commerce that's life and death. So, um, if you, if your average order value increases, you can start to have more marketing. It sort of unlocks your marketing team because you know, you get, you get to spend more to bring people in. And so it's a very healthy thing to do, to start to think about how can I sell more to each customer and, um, and by augmenting and adding these extra products, um, you can do that. I, I have these conversations, however, with brands and it's quite shocking. Like they're, they're like, I'm in the fro I make frozen baby food and they can't think outside of that box. They're in the frozen baby food box and you say to them, but hold on, your website has a picture with babies with bibs on and those bibs are really cool. You don't think there's any moms going, I wonder where, where I could buy that bib. I think that's really cool. They're going to go off and start searching for it. 
Um, and then you start looking at what else is in the pictures in your website. You know, what else does your brand really mean? Um, and you know, it turns out they'll have really nice cutlery or, or a layout, um, on a table and parents want that. So, so it, it, it the point is that the, this space, um, is, uh, is I think wide open to allow brands to grow and sort of realize who they really are. Uh, we had one called, um, Chubbies. Um, have you ever heard of Chubby Shorts? Um, yeah, I have a pair. Yeah. Shorts. So they used to be known for, for shorts, um, but it turns out. They added a whole bunch more, um, clothes and in, in our conversation with them, they said our brand actually means the weekend. And so then you start going, well, what does the weekend mean? And that means blankets, backyard games, all of this kind of stuff. And just yesterday they added blankets to their website powered by us. And, uh, it's a good example because it's starting to fill out what their brand means to them. Um, but they maybe don't want to be in the barbecue business. Like I don't want to actually make Chubby's barbecues, but. They can choose the one that they think is the coolest and add it to their store using our technology. So that's the idea. Yeah. It's sort of like audience pooling for these different brands and like, you know, like definitely people are under offering to their, um, to their audience. Like there's so many different things, just like you're saying, but how is Caro taking, are, are you just a subscription service for like Chubby's and all these brands or are you taking a percentage of every sale or, um, and how do the sales work for a brand like Chubby selling blankets that are another brand's uh, product? Like, yeah, they just upsell it and take that margin or. Right? Yeah. So it's just a, a normal relationship. One side is the retailer, one side is the supplier and, and they split the revenue between them. Um, we wanted to make the service have no subscription for suppliers because we want to have as many suppliers as we possibly can. So what we do is we take 5% of the sale. So we're basically staying to them. Here's a whole new stream of traffic because you're putting your products into everybody else's stores and you're getting all these sales. And by the way, because they're doing the drop shipping, the sale comes back into their store. So now they're actually getting orders from heaven, right? Orders just appear in their store that other people are doing all the work um, and, and they pay 5% um, for those sales. So how many of those sales would you like? Um, and, and you can imagine it's a lot. On the other side, you're the retailer. So now you're selling the thing. Um, we didn't want to charge them, um, 5%. So what we did is we, we offer subscriptions and the subscriptions are $50 a month, $250 a month and a thousand for enterprise. And so, you know, in, in the world of e-commerce, that's really a rounding error to some of these brands that are making like 50, a hundred million, um, um, dollars a year. So it's like, whatever. Um, but in reality, um, that's that, that idea of, of them paying a subscription um, kind of makes it easy for them to, to lean in based upon how big their brand is and, um, and, you know, as they grow and we hope they'll grow on our platform, um, the more they sort of embrace this idea. Um, uh, but there's other things we're working on as well. We're adding, um, if you th think about what we've done is we've effectively built a network of brands. So here's a question for you. If you owned a store and, and at checkout, I said to you, you know, by all means upsell your own products. Um, but what if there's something else in the, in the network that would convert better right now than what you've got in your store? So let's say you make electric, um, devices and you're selling electric shavers and someone's about to buy an electric toothbrush. Um, should you try to sell an electric shaver without electric toothbrush or should you sell Kendall Jenner's toothpaste? Um, and Kendall Jenner's toothpaste, trust me, is going to convert higher than your electric shaver. Um, and so we're, we're calling that network-based upsell. And so this idea of, of the network providing, you know, through business intelligence, giving the highest conversion possible at your, at your checkout, um, it is kind of interesting as well. So it's something that we're experimenting with. And of course, brands want to have control because they want to, they want to control what appears in their checkout. Like if they're into eco products, then they have to be careful with what appears, but that, you know, taking all of that into consideration, um, it makes the tech very cool. Yeah. I think there's a lot of probably lessons that people have to take in terms of letting go of their ego as the brands, right? Just like for them, it's kind of yeah. very, there's a lot of hubris to think that their data with one, let's add probably one, one millionth of the aggregate data that you have access to being zoomed out completely, is going to make better, more informed decisions with one millionth of the sample size. Uh, and it's also like an ego death to assume that the products, you know, that they put all their blood, sweat, and tears into manufacturing are the most important when they can just say, you know, 
like kill their baby or just put their baby on the back burner and let, you know, your kind of hive intelligence suggest what's best to sell. So that makes a lot of sense. I'll give you an example is, um, in the makeup industry, we saw that leg up make leg makeup sells really well. And mm. we're like, most makeup companies don't have leg makeup. They don't even think about that. Um, it's not on the radar, but in reality, if you were a, a, a female, um, shopper looking for this leg makeup, maybe there's, um, uh, maybe you've never even heard of it before and you just buy it cause you want to try it. Right. So there's a, there's a, if it's, if it's new and interesting in that space, um, you might be able to get extra sales because of that. But the point is that there's these signals that appear in the data that are kind of fascinating. Um, so, so that's, you know, in a way we're keeping them very current with what's actually selling, like maybe what's hot on social media right now that they're not even really aware of, but, but it's actually upselling in, in their store. So that's cool. So how big is your, yeah, I want to like, because I feel like if you have a couple software engineers making the right matches and you're big enough and well-known enough where people come to you on both sides of the marketplace, you just kind of need you steering the ship and a couple of people making sure the tech is working. I feel like this team is yeah, we have, small, uh, possibly. We have 40 people actually full-time and 10 contractors. So we're thinking of this globally. So our goal is to build it for the world and, um, and to bridge, um, different platforms. So I want to make it effortless to, to connect, um, brands and, and social media, for example. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work going on in the background. So it, it does actually take quite a few people. But it's not crazy. We don't have like thousands of people or something. It's not crazy. Not yet. Um, I wanted to ask about like the, the vision in my head is that like I'm scrolling through TikTok and I see a jacket and I click on it and then I can buy it. And I think that that in a way is the future of e-commerce where like no matter what you see, it's something that you can purchase like directly. What, what do you think about that intersection of social media and e-commerce and like the entertainmentization of, of e-com? That's what I was just, just hinting at there is connecting the stores directly to social media. That's exactly what it is. So the idea that you can buy the jacket, not leave social media, but what you actually did is you bought from the influencer's store. Right. So your influencer just, just earned the retailer cut. This is the only way they're going to do that. Um, and the, uh, they own the customer. So you're now the customer of that influencer. And I guess you'd probably have a relationship with the influencer over the brand, right? If at the end of the day, if you buy from their feed, I would probably want them in a way to know. And over time, maybe you're one of their, their biggest fans and you've bought quite a few things from them. I'd like them to be aware of that. And so those are the kind of things we'll think about in the future. How do we not notify them who their super fans are? all of that kind of stuff, but ultimately, um, getting the influencers, um, making it effortless is, is, I just think a key piece of the puzzle. Well, I feel like that's kind of where your gaming experience like comes into play. And like, that's where the intersection is for you is where like, like you can turn, you know, pixels into a physical object in the real world. And uh, I don't know, I think that that's fascinating and, and I'm glad that you're the guy working on it. <laughs> Oh, I'm telling you, we're having so much fun. I got such a great team of people. Um, and some of them are, um, from the game industry too. So they, I find game industry people, they tend to, they tend to not point at, at hurdles as much as, as you know, normal people do it. Normally you see people pointing at hurdles. I'm sure you've met some people in your life that keep telling you why you can't do something. Um, you know, problem, 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 problem. And you want, if you need more problems, I can tell you more. Right. And that's, that's their role in, the, in this world. Um, and then there's other people who just, um, who just don't see it that way. There's, they go, there's gotta be a way to do this. Let me have a think about it. And then they come up with a way to do it. And sometimes in the game industry, things are simulated. Um, so if you want to have a fire in a game, it's not a real fire, you know, there's no fire simulation running there. It's, it's some overlay of different, um, sprites or, 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 or polygons that are, you know, um, overlapping in, in kind of our blending in kind of cool ways to make it look like fire. And there's someone takes the time to simulate it, but now they can have enormous fires, right? They can have, you know, the whole town on fire. And it's the kind of thing that, uh, 
I, I think it's important is, is in business as well is instead of just saying, well, there's too much data, that's not possible. Um, they, they just go ahead and find a way to do it. And so we have 3d worlds. I could see you spinning 3d worlds of where, how we're doing that. We, we look at our data in 3d, um, which is not common. Um, uh, but it's, it's a very, a very cool way to see the progress of the company as it grows. That's fascinating. So gaming engineers are great people to have on your team. That's a pro tip. Uh, I want to do some more um, rapid fire questions now here. Kyle, if you have the first one, feel free to send it out. Yeah, I've got, I've got one larger question. So in 2008, you gave a Ted talk about, uh, video games converging with reality. And, you know, I think that people are, are really starting to catch on with that in, in a very big way with meta and the metaverse. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the metaverse in general, what you think of, of where we're at today, how far you think we are from like people looking through VR goggles all the time. I know that you, the, uh, the Oculus founder was on your team at one point. Um, and yeah, really just like what you think about the state of the industry and whether or not you think that the metaverse is uh, going to take over our lives. Ooh, it's a great question. Um, one thing I say to entrepreneurs is when you're, um, I have something called the restaurant test. You're in a, you're in a restaurant surrounded by people right now. And I want you to look around that restaurant. You can even just do it as a thought experiment. How many of those people are going to play VR tonight? How many would you say? What percentage? Small. Less than one. Yeah. How many are going to use Netflix tonight? Greater than 50. How many are shopping on Amazon today? You know, a lot. 99. And so yeah. that's, it sort of gives you this idea of how's it going? Like, how's it going? Um, is VR killing it? Cause you know, if the answer was most of us will be in VR tonight, then, then there you go. And so then you say, well, what's the killer app? Um, VR would not have succeeded if there wasn't a killer app. I believe that killer app is, was Beat Saber. I think when that showed up, it caused people to really say, I get it. I really see this is really really fun. Um, but I've spent a lot of time, um, uh, you know, uh, I, the game industry started to go towards free to play and things like this. And I was one of the first people in Asia, um, trying to learn about this. Um, and, and, you know, in, in many cases, uh, myself and, and this other person, Howard Marks, he was one of the founders of Activision. We would walk into these meetings in China and they would be like, you're the first Westerners to ever visit us. And, and, it, and, it, and it, we were just trying to understand, like, where is this industry going and, and, uh, you know, what's, what is going on as far as the future of the space. And, um, and that's, that's been a continuous, um, it's been a continuous piece of the, of the game industry is to sort of keep looking to what it, it doesn't all have to happen in the U S what are they learning overseas that we can maybe learn from in the United States. And, um, at the time. They were fascinated by this whole idea of starting games for free. Cause we used to charge $60 to get in the game. I call it the money wall. If you can't climb over the money wall, you can't play our game. That's just stupid. Um, uh, they were, they were free and then they, they sell items. And, uh, at the time I was giving speeches, um, um, talking about, you know, you, this is at some point, this is going to, to make it over here. And, um, and I was the size of the teams they had in, in Asia were, were much larger than the teams we had in the West, but we had better technology than they did because they were catching up. But I'm like, they're going to catch up. They're going to get access to the stuff. Some of the games they have are just enormous. And some of the game ideas I thought were completely unique. They had, had ideas that we hadn't really even thought of here. And, um, and so I was, I was the one that tried to evangelize all of that in my speeches. Um, when I gave the Ted talk, um, the TED talk was just to, to give a little bit of a framework on that. That's another fun piece of, um, when you're, when you're working your way through your life, you're going to have situations like that. TED was a big deal. And I'm like, I want to give a TED talk. And then you say to yourself, well, how can I give a TED talk? I don't want to do TEDx. I want to be on the main stage of TED. And, and I'm like, how do I do that? And so then I, I went to TED and there's a. They had a buffet for lunch and they, the curator was at the buffet grabbing his salad and I walk up to him and I, and I pitched him. And so 
these opportunities come along, but you can imagine my window of opportunity there is like 30 seconds. So, you know, are you going to go for it or not? Right. Are you ready? So I walk over and I explain to him, you know, technology entertainment design is what TED stands for. Um, why don't you, why don't you have more video games? Cause that's the definition of technology, entertainment and design. It's like, it seems to me like a no brainer. And he goes, you know, that's a great point. We haven't done games for quite some time. Huh? Would you be interested in doing a talk on video games? And that's, and so that's welcome to the real world. I, I once gave a commencement speech at a university and, um, and I talked about this kind of stuff where that opportunity is a 30 second moment in time that you will or will not take advantage of. And, and you have to decide, you know, am I going to go for it? And, and it can change things. Cause when you speak at Ted, it's, it's a bit of an unlock, you know, you, you meet lots of really interesting people. Um, and so it's the kind of, um, it's the kind of thing that I give this commencement speech. And so I, I, what I was kind of saying is life has luck in it and the luck puts you in certain places and certain and meeting certain people are getting introduced to someone, the person sitting beside you in the airplane seat, all of these, these opportunities come along and it's up to you, what you do about that. And, and, um, it was so funny because at the end of my speech, the teachers were, uh, the Dean was really not happy with my speech because they're like, no, no, it's the education. It's all about education. It's got nothing to do with luck. And, and, and I'm like, well, actually it kind of does. Right. So, so that's. I think you guys are going to have fun as you work your way through your, your, you know, all your business life. It's going to be fun for you to see those, those moments in time and take it from me. When those moments come, seize them, um, because they're, they can be, they can be life changing in certain situations, right? You know, um, and, and, and they will, I guarantee those moments are going to happen to you. Is that commencement speech online anywhere? If people want to check it out. The TED talk is a great question as, as, as a fallback. Yeah. But it was at Queens university. So here, imagine me, I'm in high school and I'm making video games. I didn't know you could make money from making video games uh, at the time. And I learned you, I suddenly learned you could when I got paid. So then I got a job offer to move to England, but I'm still in high school. So what do you do? Do you leave high school and go to England and start making video games in a new industry? Um, and so I decided that's what I was going to do, which meant I never went to college. I have no college degree at all. Um, and the joke here is that that commencement speech was when they were giving me a doctorate in, in engineering at, at a really good university. Um, at the same time as the prime minister and Nelson Mandela, think about that, the prime minister of England. Um, and so, um, that's what's kind of the joke is even though you kind of shortcut the system, like I didn't ever go to, to college, I end up with a doctorate and they call me Dr. Perry when I go on the campus. Um, that's hilarious. That's funny to me. Have, so go ahead. Have you ever spoken to Alex Benayan or read the book, The Third Door or heard of it? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. What's that about? Um, the Third Door is a book written by a guy named Alex Benayan who, um, you know, basically the the concept wrapped into one thing is that when you go to a nightclub there's three doors the first door is where the celebrities and the uh prime ministers and nelson mandela walk in the second door is where everybody else like you and me walk in where you know you wait in the line yeah. you just like wait and if you have a friend maybe you get to cut and then the third door is where you kick and you knock over things and you crawl in a back uh, like bathroom window and you get in the club anyways. And uh, he's like, that's the overall story. Um, but like his whole you know, life has been defined by like these moments where he calls it the flinch that that 15 seconds where, you know, you can or you cannot walk up to the, the um, director at Ted he calls that the flinch. It's like you freeze and you either do it or you don't. And like, that's where so many of these good things have happened to him. But I think that, uh, he would be an incredible influencer for Caro. And I think that the two of you would really get along. I've never met him. Lewis and I would love to have him on the podcast, but, and, and we connected over the book because the two of us actually read the book in one sitting, uh, without knowing that the other person did that. Yeah. You, and so you should tell him, just, just reach out to him. You'd be stunned how we have, yeah, yeah. how these people have. are reachable. Um, mm -hmm. that's one thing that the podcast has taught us for sure. 
uh, is just how reachable some people are. Um, but yeah, I think that your life has sort of been, you know, defined by this third door attitude and mentality. Like, you know, you've left high school to go do the, like, you know, you sold a company to Sony. You've done all these things that, um, you know, seem sort of impossible or have hurdles, but you just went straight through them or went straight over them. So, um, yeah, I think you enjoy that book. <laughs> but it's like, uh, you hear that with the, um, the successful influencers, they tend to say, they just, they just do it. Like they just, they start making the videos or they just, in a way that's, that's the, the ultimate thing for you to think about is really just what's stopping you moving forward. Um, I, a lot of people will pitch ideas and say, I can't move forward until somebody invests. Actually you can. Um, and there's lots of great books like the lean startup, which will explain how you can move forward when, when you still haven't got funding. Um, uh, but you need to think about, um, you know, just, just creating momentum. And if you can create momentum, other people will, will want to participate. They're always, there's a lot of people that look for somebody else to get the party started and then they'll, they'll join in. Um, and so. You know, go ahead and start the party or go ahead and, and make the first move and, uh, and you'll see the thing that's great with the internet is that you can actually find people these days. So there's, you know, rest assured there's people like you that want to accomplish things that, uh, maybe you're a programmer and you need an artist. There's an artist out there somewhere that's just dying to get some attention for their art. And, uh, you have the internet. I didn't have the internet in the old days. Nowadays. You have access to all these, uh, these people and so much knowledge. So in a way, um, uh, you can just go for it. There's also a big thing I'm into, uh, which is kind of going back to what you just said is that when you reach out to people that are accessible, what I learned from the game industry is I was on the board of the game developers conference for nearly 10 years. And we watched all of these people sharing, you know, their ideas and their technologies and their programming skills. There's so many people willing to share. So when I wanted to get into photography, um, what I did was I looked to see who are the best photographers in the world that are doing master classes. And, you know, it, I, the, the joke was that I discovered that Canon pays for them. So there's a place near me called the Canon Experience Center. They fly in the best photographers in the world and they just teach us for free. And, um, I started taking all these classes and then I would, some of them would have an extended spend four days with me and. I'll teach you everything. And, and so I'd spend the four days in LA when, you know, with some photographer and, and ultimately the download is like, like in the matrix, you know, when they're like, I want to fly a helicopter and it's like, ah, and then suddenly you can fly a helicopter. You can do that with, with just about anything today. Um, you want to learn photography. There are really great people that will, it will cost money, but in reality, you're getting 30 years of experience in two days. You know, it's worth it. Trust me, the, 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 the quality change in what you create is going to profoundly change. And then you say, well, what, what does, I mean, I, recently in the last week, for some crazy reason, I've got interested in color grading, um, video, cause it turns out that, you know, I, you know, for a lot of really, really sort of high end stuff, the color grading is a very key piece of what makes it look cool. And, uh, and, if, and, and now I'm seeing. You know, I've got onto some mailing lists and I'm getting invited to master classes with the guys that do it at, at, you know, Netflix and things like that. So professional shows, how do they do their color grading for Netflix? Um, these networks and these people are all out there and you just have to engage. Um, and, and of course, choose the ones that are going to fit the path that you're interested in, but learning about these things, um, I think is really important to sort of understand and appreciate what other people do. And then you can sort of put that together and hopefully choose a path that, um, you know, that, that you're excited about. There's a, the, the number one speaker um, at Ted, um, uh, his name was Sir Ken Robinson guys, a freaking rock star, like standing ovation after standing ovation. And he wrote a book called, um, the element. And the idea was that, that to try to help you understand that you're there's something that you're uniquely designed for. And, uh, and it's a shame when people don't work out what that is. And so if you never find your element, you end up being an accountant because your dad was an accountant and the, you know, and you just do whatever people tell you to do. Um, but if you work out what your element is, then you won't be able to stop yourself doing it because you're so excited about it and you can't stop thinking about it. You become obsessed by it. You're a nightmare for anybody else who has to be paid to do that thing. 
if this person has to be paid to write and this person writes for free and stays up all night because they're so excited about it, then th that's an unfair fight, right? And, and that happens in every possible category. Um, a fun thing to do is to look around the room that you're in right now and every single thing in that room has been created by somebody. So somebody, every nut and screw, somebody, the screw holding something together, someone sat there and went, is this the right metal? Is this the right smoothness? Is this the right accuracy, tolerances? Um, you know, the chemistry, how many turns per inch? I mean, there's somebody cares about everything passionately. And so you say, and that's someone's element is, is being an expert in that space. And so that's, that's really, um, a fun thing for you to do is, is to keep trying different things because you never know. I mean, color grading could turn out to be fascinating to me or it could just be like, okay, cool. Now I understand it. Um, uh, but that's the, that's something that, you know, every time again, it's the door concept. This is, this is a, this is a mental door. Um, do you go through, do you learn about that thing or don't you, what's your choice? Yeah, that was, that's my challenge. Really, really awesome. Just the curiosity and energy and kind of lifelong learning and passion, I think should really hopefully inspire a lot of people listening to this. And I really love a lot of the kind of video game analogies you kind of bring up kind of just very casually in a lot of the ways you just tell these stories, you know, the Ted talk was like an unlock and you kind of, these things just randomly level you up and you kind of accept the challenge and these kind of interesting, awesome things happen. Uh, kind of before we started recording, we discussed that one thing I like to do with the show is kind of make opportunities, uh, make people consider opportunities with businesses kind of based on the, the things you present. So one thing I'm curious about, you know, you kind of half answered this a moment ago where what your answer might be, but if someone doesn't have an audience and they don't have a product, but they kind of think that what you have with Caro is like really, really interesting. Like how could someone, what are some ideas you might have for someone without an audience who's not an influencer yet, there's not a brand to kind of take this awesome uh, new opportunity and create a business? Could that be like, you know, Caro consulting, you know, you reach out to brands and kind of pitch them, hey, you should use this tool and create this thing. Like, what would you say you've really have created what I think is like a pretty obvious massive opportunity that a lot of people just aren't taking advantage of with unlocking, you know, additional possibilities for brands and influencers. So how would someone take advantage of that if they're, they're kind of brand new and want to use this new opportunity, this new set of tools, expanded potential? I think one thing to say, yeah, one thing to think about would be if you make websites, you should think about making websites for influencers. They, they really want them and there's about 60 million of them. And what great partners for you, um, if you're just getting going. So build their stores and build Cairo into their stores. So now they can start partnering with, um, you know, lots and lots of brands. If there's a certain brand that they'd like to partner with, it's not in Cairo yet. They can literally just say, please install Cairo. And now they can, it's that easy. We've had some brands come in and add 10 other brands because they want to partner with them. So that, that would be one is if, if you're interested in that the second is, well, hold on. I'm interested in a certain, um, product category, Hawaiian products, right? I'm in the Hawaiian products for some reason. So I'm going to build my own store of Hawaiian products. You can do that on our platform as well. Um, uh, currently we have a wait list for people who have no audience. So if you have no audience at all, um, then we don't immediately rush to partner you with people because you don't have any audience and you have no sales. Um, but. If you reach out to us again, mention this podcast, hello at getcaro.com, have a conversation with them or show them that what you're going to build is, is legitimate and cool. And, and they can unlock you and let you go, uh, within the system. We're just, we just have a bit of a filter cause we don't want to waste brands time with, you know, partnering with people that aren't actually going to launch their store. Um, uh, but, but when, if you're really serious and you're building something that's going to look really good, then we'd love to, of course, launch that. Um, but. Yeah, that means that you can have products in any category, work with real brands. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a networking thing. You sort of build credibility. Um, and the more you build it, the more you're going to get people wanting to partner with you. Um, and the, the influencer part, I think it's just, is one of the tricks to sort of get that party started real, really quite quickly. Cause there's so many of them that need stores. You come to them with a no loss proposition, okay. right? Well, yeah, cause they, they, they're not going to build their own store. Um, and they don't have time. Um, they don't want a warehouse with products in it. So therefore it's only going to be a solution like Cara that could ever work for them. Um, they probably don't want to drop ship from China cause it's not the best experience for their, their, um, for their fans. 
Um, and if the brands and them start selling a lot of product together, that they, they should, they should maybe make a custom version for the influencer. Um, and you can see, it's just helping this, the, um, the, the sort of the met, when you talk to investors, what we talk about is commerce enablement. That's actually what this is. So the, if you're to just pull back, all we're trying to do is help people do business, um, in any way, any way that we see that they could do more business than they're doing today, then we're going to try to build that and make that possible. But it's, it's ultimately this clear concept of, is that going to enable more commerce? If so, we're in, um, that that's sort of the filter that we're using. But we're coming close to the, the time we all have budgeted today. I'm sure we have a million more questions and could go on and on and on. Uh, but out of respect for everyone's time, I think we'll wrap it up here. If people want to learn about Caro, learn more from you, where would you like to direct the attention we've gathered in this specific podcast? Yeah, if we go, just go to getcaro.com, T-E-T-C-A-R-R-O.com. Um, you can install the app if you have a Shopify store. And uh, again, make sure to reach out to us at hello at getcaro.com and we'll, uh, we'll take really good care of you. Just make sure to mention the podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. And that wraps up our conversation with David Perry, another incredible, amazing, interesting guest. Uh, my three takeaways are number one around social commerce and just how the future of commerce looks a lot more natural, a lot less going to websites and a lot more um, seeing things in your feed or, or wherever it might be and purchasing them. Uh, I, I was thinking after this conversation about how if you could you know, walk down the sidewalk, see that somebody was wearing a jacket, and then buy that jacket, like immediately, what would that be like? And I think that uh, David Perry and, and Caro are, are pushing us in that direction because at the end of the day, end of the day, sales are sales and you know no one really cares where those sales come from as long as they're happening. Uh, number two is just his like openness and willingness to learn about other things um, and how the refusal to learn is the refusal to grow. And, you know, just because you don't like NFTs, you don't like crypto, you don't like this, you don't like that. It's not a reason to not get to some baseline, base level proficiency and understanding so that you can, you know, develop why you think the way you think. You know, you should always, um, always learn first versus dismissal. Uh, and then number three, you know, David's story, he sort of, he didn't really have a reason to play video games like there was no financial incentive in the beginning for him to just like play video games and, and develop video games it's what he loved it's what was fun there was no like activision or blizzard back then it was all about what he found super interesting and, and how he followed it so it's all about following the fun uh don't do anything that you don't enjoy and you know that's part of the reason why lewis and i do this podcast because we love it and we love talking to super interesting people like david We've got three takeaways from this conversation as well. This one might sound a little funky, but there's just some things that are some some very, very true truths. Uh, that, give me a second to kind of articulate what I mean by that. But there's some things where just you listen to them and you've encountered the idea so many times and it just kind of hits you like it's just right. Uh, so Russell Brunson, who's one of my favorite authors in kind of the marketing world, always talks about how whoever can spend the most to acquire the customer wins. And you know, David gives a lot of examples of that in this episode. And there are just some things, you know, he says that we've heard other guests say just gets pounded into your head over and over again. And sometimes it just clicks and it's like mind blowing how true certain things are and certain axioms just are fundamentally not wrong. And the sooner you, I don't want to say like submit to them or just accept their truth, the, the better off you become. Uh, and that's why, you know, it's important to be coachable and listen to people who know what they're talking about, et cetera. So that's my first takeaway. Very, very true truths, if that made any sense. Second one is the kind of superpowers, life hackies, you want to call it, about different ways to get past no. So David talks about how when he was a photographer, no one cared, and then to look at his photos, but then all of a sudden when he was photographing people with egos, everyone cared. And the takeaway is like, how do you get past no with people? How do you all of a sudden appeal to their self-interest, which everyone has, and all of a sudden get in the room with them? So as a podcaster, I when I invite someone on the show, Say, hey, do you want you know two really high energy people in their early 20s to ask you really thoughtful questions that demonstrate they've done a lot of research and let you talk about yourself and the things you're most interested in for an hour? Most people say yes to that. Uh, same thing with a photographer, right? Hey, can I have some of your time to get coffee? I don't know what's in it for me. Hey, I'm just trying to like build a portfolio of work. Do you mind if I take really great photos of you that you can use 
across the internet and make great use of. It's a very, very different pitch when you have something to offer. So two hacks for now, photography, podcasting, uh, also writing. I think, hey, do you mind if I like interview you for this essay? Again, just anything that creates positive publicity or makes people look good or appeals to their ego. All of a sudden, you get past no. It's kind of interesting. And then the third one is kind of repeating the very, very true truths. But so many people on this podcast, when they tell the story of their business and the difficulty of reaching scale, the businesses that just appeared organically, that people did not intentionally set out to create, right? This is David coming out of retirement to create this business unexpectedly, unplanned. Those just are the businesses that scale out of control. There are super early examples of this and really early episodes of the show, right? We talk with Ethan Reeves, who created a successful speech and debate SaaS company while still in high school because he solved a problem for himself and everyone wanted it. We talked to so many other people um, struggling to think of examples here, but you know, they're there. There's 96 episodes. It's, it's a lot to remember. But in the episodes where these people just were doing one other thing and then this problem came to them and then they present, they, they fixed it and then other people found out they fixed it and this came to them, that's when things really take off. And this was another example of that. So, I encourage you, you know, your life might be easier when you know you have product market fit. And that's what I have to say for this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed our opportunity to chat with David. Uh, I want to quickly thank our sponsor for this episode, Espresso Displays. They're the thinnest portable monitors in the world that I know about, but I'm pretty sure they're the thinnest portable monitors in the world outright. There's a link in the description for where you can get yours and support the show. I would encourage you to at least take a look. It's kind of cool, right? I took mine with me. I was traveling for the entire month of January of this year. It's exhausting. I slept in eight different places. And every single place I went, I took out my laptop and the espresso, and I had two screens to work on. Really would have been very difficult to get that much work done had I not had that set up. It was founded by a previous guest, Scott, from episode 69, Joe and Scott. I was one of our pre pretty limited. We've not done too many two-person interviews, but I think that one was a great episode. Anyway, that's what I have to say, Espresso Displays. If you want to support the show in other ways, I would encourage you to make that downloads number go up by looking at the other roughly 100 episodes in this feed, making sure you're subscribed to wherever you're listening, whether that's YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera. And otherwise, we always encourage you to share feedback with us, whether that's a rating or review on Apple iTunes, or just an email, direct message, text, et cetera. Otherwise, we'll be back roughly one week with the next episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you then. Bye-bye.